This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Taliban is being urged to reverse a ban on all women working for aid agencies in Afghanistan with fears it'll make life difficult for Afghan people struggling through a harsh winter with minimal resources. Separate to that, Afghan women are defying the militant group by protesting against the latest ban on them attending university. In demonstrating, they're risking their lives and they've told the ABC they need international help with no options for their future. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports. A group of young women marched down a Kabul street, protesting the latest loss of their rights, a ban on university for females. They're chanting, we will beat the oppression and we will prevail. Some of the women are defying one of the Taliban's rules. They're out in public without their faces covered. Then a Taliban vehicle starts coming towards them. One of the protesters, Basira, says women in the group were then arrested, handcuffed and tortured. But she managed to get away with some of the others. The only goal of the Taliban is to wipe out women from this earth. Every day the cage becomes narrower and life becomes more difficult. When the Taliban returned to power last year, it promised to allow women rights under its Sharia law to keep relations up with the international community. But the militant group has progressively been stripping women of their rights. They can't go to high school, parks, gyms, most jobs outside their homes and now universities. Azada is a second year literature student at Kabul University. I have a question for the Taliban saying that schools and university is against Islam and Afghan values. What is your argument or reason for announcing that girls shouldn't get an education? Because Islam says education is mandatory for men and women. Countries like Australia and Canada have condemned the ban. Sitara is a second-year medical student at Kabul University and fears things will just get worse for women. I don't know how many more restrictive restrictions they will impose on us. They have already imposed all the possible inhumane restrictions on us. On the weekend, the Taliban banned all local and foreign NGOs from allowing female workers in Afghanistan until further notice. Four major global NGOs, which have reached millions of Afghan people with their aid, have already pulled out their services. The Taliban is playing a dangerous game with the international community, ruling a country that's crippled by the loss of foreign aid, but making moves that will leave Afghanistan without support for the foreseeable future. This is Avani Dias reporting for AM. A new refugee sponsorship program started mid-year in Australia where communities sponsor newcomers to this country. The number's included in the federal government's humanitarian intake, but that could change. The Community Refugee Settlement and Integration Pilot is inspired by a successful scheme in Canada that's helped settle more than 325,000 refugees since the 1970s. Information sessions about the Aussie trial are being held in the new year. Lisa Button is the chief executive of the program. She recently returned from visiting Canada with Australia's Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles. She joined me earlier. So we've had um, 18 families arrive since August, and that's across four Australian states. So that's around 84 people from a variety of countries. And, I mean, for them, it's just been an absolute game changer. These are people who've been living 
in danger and in limbo for many, many years who finally got the opportunity to start rebuilding their lives in a safe country. How does the program work for people here who volunteer to support a family? Essentially, all you need is a group of five or more adults. So that could be a group of friends or, you know, different families. It really doesn't matter where you come from as long as you live in the same general area. And that group puts its hand up to uh, welcome and support a refugee through this program or refugee or, or family and goes through some training with us, does a bit of basic sort of safety checks, working with children and police checks. And then they get matched up with a refugee household And those people are selected initially by the UNHCR. So it's drawing on, unfortunately, a very large pool of refugees who are in very urgent need of resettlement. The UNHCR refers those refugees to the Australian government and the Australian government has decided, yes, these are people who meet our criteria and we'd like to offer them a visa to come here under our humanitarian program. So far, the people who've arrived under this pilot have been included in the official humanitarian intake that Australia accepts. Is there any talk of changing that? And you know, the Albanese government has signalled it would like to see 5,000 people come here under this scheme. What are the next steps? Yeah, so that's something that is is just so welcome. The Albanese government has a very clear commitment to the idea that it's going to grow our humanitarian intake. And as part of that, it will um, have 5,000 additional visas through community sponsorship. So that means in the future, um, once the the government realises that ambition, that people who would not otherwise get the opportunity to come here will be able to do so thanks to the efforts of groups who engage in community sponsorship programs like like the CRISP. So we're hoping that 2023 will be the year when that ambition is, is realised by the government and we see a policy change to reflect that. And then, of course, start to really scale up the work that we're doing because right now this is a relatively small pilot and there's going to need to be significant scaling to get to that ambition of 5,000 extra visas per year. Has the level of interest so far surprised you? It's been really, really encouraging. People routinely tell us that this is one of the most wonderful things that they've ever done um, and that they actually think they get more out of it than the refugees do in terms of the experience. And what difference is this making to the lives of people who are coming here? I had the pleasure of meeting a young 11-year-old boy back in August when he first arrived and this is a, a young man who'd had no formal education for more than a few months here and there as his family had to move from place to place due to the, the danger that they were facing. And when I met him, his only words in English were hello and thank you. And, you know, three months later, I was able to um, enjoy a meal with him and have an engaging conversation and hear about how he's putting his hand up to be class captain of his year six class and participating in his school orchestra. He's a very talented musician. We've seen other families, you know, with adults already in work, women getting their driver's licenses in some cases for the first time, um, people making plans to establish new businesses. So it's really uh, just so wonderful to see all of these milestones being achieved and the Australian volunteers who've helped those families achieve those milestones just enjoying the experience so much and feeling that satisfaction of knowing that rather than just watch the evening news and feel despair, that there's something practical that they can do and, and they can see the difference that that's making in, a, in an actual um, life. So it's a real win-win. 
And that's Lisa Button from Community Refugee Sponsorship Australia. Many Chinese Australians are busy planning travel to China following Beijing's decision to drop quarantine rules for international travellers soon. More than one million Australians have Chinese heritage. Many haven't seen relatives on mainland China since the pandemic started. But as COVID cases surge in China, some are weighing up the risks of travelling there, as Gavin Coote reports. Danielle's doing a quick grocery shop in Sydney's northwest with her mother, who's just become a permanent resident. They're among thousands of Chinese Australians who call the suburb of Eastwood home and haven't seen their family in China for years. Yeah, I still have like my dad, like my relatives still. Oh, y- yeah. Your father's still there? Yeah, my father's still there. Yeah. When did you last see him? And, and... Uh, 2019 October, yeah, so it was before the pand- pandemic. My mom went back to China in this May. Her quarantine was like 28 days plus 7 days at home, so 35 days quarantine for her at that time. China now plans to scrap quarantine for travellers arriving in the country as it moves away from its zero COVID policy. The country's borders have been largely shut since 2020, but from the 8th of January, visitors will only have to show a negative PCR test. Eastwood residents Yang and Rihanna are eager to get back to China. They haven't seen their parents in Guangdong province since before the pandemic. When I go back, it should be close to Chinese um, New Year. So it will be a lot of uh, family gathering and uh, catch-ups. And when are you planning to go over? Probably in April. Yeah, haven't brought the ticket yet. Still monitoring because I think it's going cheaper very soon. So I'm waiting for it to go a bit cheaper because it's very expensive right now. When did you last get back there? same three and a half years ago <laughs> yes yeah, so it's been a while yeah and both my parents got covered so they're okay <laughs> yeah most people are getting covered right now back in china so it's all right yeah but china's now recording millions of new COVID infections every day and that's left many feeling cautious about a trip there lin bin is a community leader who runs a chinese language academy in sydney and has family both in hong kong and the chinese mainland Many people uh, read the news uh, and also uh, read the message from uh, our friends uh, who live in China. So they worry about what happened in China because there are many, many people die in China now. Eastwood resident Danielle would prefer to hold off for a bit before planning a trip back to China. All the hospitals are really like busy and with all the people like in intensive care. So I don't think it might be a good timing for now. This coming few months to go, but I think after a while it could be better. Chinese-Australian Danielle, ending Gavin Coote's report. One day, 11 hours, 56 minutes and 48 seconds. That's the winning race time for Andrew at Comanche, which has taken line honours in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. It's not a record, but it came close. Reporter Ali Humphreys is at Constitution Dock in Hobart. She joined me a short time ago. Good morning, Sabra. Well, it was pretty quiet when I first got here this morning, but there are definitely people filtering through. Keen to get a look at these yachts that have started pulling in in Constitution Dock here. It was really exciting early this morning, though, and it was about 1am. Andrew Comanche managed to cross the line first after quite a tight tussle up the Derwent. Andrew Comanche managed to get its fourth line honours win in the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race. 
Law Connect was second up the Derwent, so just behind, finished about 20 minutes behind. There was a press conference this morning, so we have already heard from the winning skipper from Angie Comanche, John Winning Jr., a little earlier this morning. Yeah, it feels uh, pretty unbelievable at the moment. It's just still sinking in. You know, it was only less than an hour ago, we were sort of still thinking, are we about to have a shutdown? What's going to happen? Uh, yeah, just didn't feel real till the last minute and then now it's only just starting to settle in but it feels amazing for us we won what we were going for and what we set out to achieve which was the line on us and that means a hell of a lot I have been here once before so I had a little bit of an idea what to expect but to do it you know in a campaign that I was part of putting together uh, is yeah really quite exceptional just exceptional how, how many people went into making this a reality and I can't thank them enough from the bottom of my heart. And Ali, there are still so many boats to come in from, for this gruelling race. Are locals up early to see them cross the finish line? There are, yeah, a few locals out here early. It's been a beautiful sunrise this morning, so people getting down here to have a look. Uh, while conditions are still nice, so this morning we also had the the other of the Supermaxis, Blackjack and Hamilton Island Wild Oats, both cross the line. There are a few already on the River Derwent on their way in. But later today, there's going to be uh, some severe weather hitting, so severe winds hitting the rest of the fleet that are still at sea. The wind's already starting to pick up here a little bit, uh, so that's only going to get worse throughout the day. But I did manage to speak to a few people this morning who were taking an opportunity to have a look at the yachts down here while it is still pretty nice out there. I flew in from Western Australia yesterday and I thought I'd just come for a nice um, morning jog and uh, yeah, this is what we've discovered. It's fantastic. Yeah, we've set, well, we can see four yachts that have come in. We've seen a lot of crew partying on over at the recent cafe nearby. And the, the conditions, what do you think of them? Yeah, good. Not good for the ones that are coming up late though, for them that go subtly. So the race is really on for the rest of the fleet, Sabra, as they're heading in, trying to get in as soon as possible now. Reporter Ali Humphreys at Constitution Dock here in Hobart. With post-Christmas shopping sales in full swing, consumer groups are calling for a crackdown on buy-now-pay-later credit schemes. Consumer advocates say loopholes that allow lenders to sidestep the nation's credit laws with offers that cause customers to sink further into unserviceable debt should be closed. Nick Grimm reports. With prices steadily climbing and household savings getting lower, shoppers like this woman can see the appeal of buy now and pay later. It works, you know, it works. It helps you get things... And I think it's awesome. I think it gives you a lot of flexibility. But other consumers, well, let's just say they don't have a huge amount of confidence in the buy now, pay later model. Yes, I'm very wary of getting into debt. You hear about a lot of people getting into serious debt with it, so I'd be very reticent to recommend it to anyone. What do you think of buy now, pay later schemes? I think it's... Um not a very good idea. I think people get themselves into too much trouble. And that was the predicament facing this single mother who wants to be known only as Amy. So by the time I would pay, you know, my rent, my electricity, you know, my gas, just the main things, you know, groceries for the house, I was left with nothing. It all began when a former partner encouraged her to keep signing up to new buy now, pay later schemes, but eventually left with an empty purse, bills piling up, and a massive loan balance waiting to be paid 
Amy found herself caught in a debt trap. And it just sort of kept going and kept going. I think it ended up being about 12 companies. I think it was 12 buy now, pay later companies that I was registered with that I ended up couldn't, I couldn't make the payments for. We've been long concerned that buy now, pay later credit products exploit loopholes in Australia's credit laws to sell people into unaffordable debt. Jared Brody is the CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre. It's part of a coalition of consumer groups that's responded to a consultation paper released by the federal government, calling for input into how to better regulate the buy now, pay later sector. Uh, buy now, pay later has been just left on its own such that, you know, there is limited checks. People can just give their name and details and get signed up to large lines of credit. Uh, that is a recipe for overcommitment, overconsumption, at a time when the Reserve Bank is trying to limit inflation. Consumer groups want buy now, pay later providers licensed like other credit services and required to comply with responsible lending obligations. They also want a ban on unsolicited offers that increase indebtedness. And they're calling for late fees and charges to be capped. For Amy, the solution is simple. Just don't buy what you can't pay for right now. I think what I've learned out of all of this is if you want something and you can't afford it, you can save. Former Buy Now Pay Later customer Amy Nick Grimm reporting there. Do you wear sunscreen at 8.30 in the morning when you're outdoors? In much of Australia, you should, according to the World Health Organisation. That's because that's about when the UV index crosses into the risky ter territory of three and over. And with one Australian dying of melanoma every five hours, it's a message worth heeding. But experts say some Australians still wrongly associate high temperature with sunburn, despite it also happening in cooler and overcast weather. Any guest reports. <laughs> Children enjoy a beachside playground on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Bow will be five in February and Park will be three in March. There's no shade here and the children wear sunscreen, but their father says he's never used it and rarely gets burnt. For my kids, they, I've generally got the yeah, SPF 50. No hats right now? No hats right now, hats are in the car. So obviously it's a bit overcast, it's a bit nicer. At the beach, two friends chat as they sit in the sun, wearing bikini tops and shorts and no hats. I don't wear sun protection. Never? No. Why is that? You know, I just limit my time exposure and know when it's time to go into shade, that's it. Got to always work on the tan. Such views worry the Public Health Association CEO, Terry Slevin, who says unprotected sun exposure is unsafe a lot of the time, including in cooler or overcast weather. The UV index of three is the cut point the World Health Organisation sets as the point at which people should start protecting their skin. Often you'll go over the level of three before even 8.30 in some places. So uh, generally, nine to five outside, Protect your skin. 16,000 Australians are diagnosed with melanoma every year. Professor Georgina Long from the Melanoma Institute says Australia remains the skin cancer capital of the world. So in Australia, someone's diagnosed every 30 minutes and someone dies from melanoma every five hours because it spreads around the body. So prevention is the best way to battle this and um, prevention requires you just to be sun safe. Sun safety is a message these beachgoers take seriously. So we got the two boys out there at the moment, but we always make sure that they've got 
sunblock on and a hat and, and a rushy if it's the middle of the day, not all the time. I have a multitude of different sunscreens for different <laughs> occasions and activities. Professor Long says sunscreen should be considered the last line of defence and even then it must be thick and reapplied regularly. Sun-safe behaviour, uh, know the middle of the day, try to avoid it, uh, wear hats, sunglasses, clothing, seek shade and sunscreen. So doing the first four things are going to be your best bet, but sunscreen's a fifth, um, somewhat effective, but not as effective as the first four. And while prevention is the best cure, Professor Long also urges people to check their skin for worrying changes. Any guest reporting, that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.